Extended lockdown. President Donald Trump updates the country on how long social distancing will continue. Seeking relief. Analysis of a $2 trillion relief bill passed by lawmakers and signed by the White House. Coronavirus and Catholics, many around the globe are barred from attending mass and church leaders are debating the best ways to administer sacraments. And calming our fears, Pope Francis tells the faithful how to find comfort even in the most difficult of times. On EWTN News Nightly for Monday, March 30th, 2020. Good evening, and thank you very much for joining us. I'm Owen Jensen. Tracy is off. Great to see you tonight. President Donald Trump says he listened to public health experts when he decided to extend social distancing guidelines through the end of April. The new timeline means many people will still be sheltering at home during Holy Week and Easter. The president is trying to slow the spread of the coronavirus, which Johns Hopkins University reports now has already claimed some 37,000 lives around the world. A symbol of hope arrives in New York City. The U.S. Navy ship Comfort will be treating non-coronavirus patients while hospitals treat people with COVID-19. Mayor Bill de Blasio says it's like an additional hospital just floated right up. I'm really happy that the Comfort is here. I mean, the fact that the Navy is here, the military is here to help New York City in our hour of need, that is amazingly important to this city. President Donald Trump saluted the comfort on Saturday as it departed Virginia for the trip to New York. Back at the White House yesterday, he urged people to stay home through April 30th whenever possible. Nothing would be worse than declaring victory before the victory is won. The president's medical advisors convinced him to extend the social distancing guidelines. His first goal is to, pre to prevent suffering and death. And we made it very clear to him that if we pulled back on what we were doing and didn't extend them, there would be more avoidable suffering and avoidable death. So it was a pretty clear decision on his part. The intensive care unit at one hospital in Brooklyn is already at capacity. We need prayer, we need support. Dr. Arabia Millette calls it a war. This is a war zone. It's a medical war zone. Every day I come in, what I see on a daily basis is pain, despair, suffering. For millions, it's changed life dramatically. How do you explain the pandemic to children forced to stay home from school? I asked President Trump directly. What would you say to those kids right now, elementary school, middle school, high school, what would you tell them right now who are watching from home? I would say that you are a citizen of the greatest country anywhere in the world. And we were attacked like nothing that's happened possibly since 1917, many, many years ago. We were attacked. And we're winning the battle, and we're going to win the war. Also tonight, lawmakers are already working on a fourth emergency spending bill after just passing a record-breaking $2.2 trillion economic rescue package. House Democrats want more direct rebates now to low- and middle-income Americans. Correspondent Eric Rosales reports now from Capitol Hill. Eric. Well, Owen, lawmakers in both parties say that they expect discussions on the fourth phase of the relief coronavirus bill in the next few weeks. As Americans continue to deal with travel restrictions, social distancing, and many are out of work. We want to take care of the people who take care of us. Federico's Pizza in Belmar, New Jersey, is open for business. We're going to take whatever donation you give um, to keep our employees working 
And then we're going to, the food that we're making, because my employees are working, we're going to donate to the ERs, to the, the, the firefighters, the, the frontline people that are truly the heroes. It's the kind of small business Congress and the president aim to help with funding in the CARES Act. The Speaker of the House is eyeing even more money for workers and families. Every single day, the need grows. I've talked to the chairman of the Fed, the Federal Reserve Bank, Mr. Powell, and asked him, Chairman Powell, and asked him to do much more because they have the authority to do so. While the House and the Senate are out on recess, their work continues. Dr. Bill Cassidy, Republican senator from Louisiana, says if a person recovers from the coronavirus, they likely become immune to the virus. He says we need to develop immunity registries, tweeting, quote, this coupled with widespread testing to document immunity will allow herd immunity to develop and let those who are immune return to work. Several senators that I spoke with say that they're on board for remote voting because of this coronavirus epidemic and they would vote for a rule change. Now, they also say that the government needs to continue to operate. Owen? Correspondent Eric Rosales reporting tonight from Capitol Hill. Thank you very much, Eric. Well, joining me now on Skype to talk about the economic impact of the coronavirus is Joel Griffith, research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Joel, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Let's get right to it. Folks are now being told to stay at home until the end of April, another month. You had the 15 days before that. We're talking 45 days now. We don't know when this is going to end. Uh, the number one thing, of course, is people's health. All right, no doubt about that. But what kind of setback is this for an economy already reeling this extension of 30 days, if you will? Like it's, there's no doubt this is a setback for the economy. Uh, I, I, you know, we can go ahead and, and focus on and helping out businesses and individuals, but until we can get this economy moving again, safely, we're going to be experiencing some some economic hardship. If you look at uh, just the jobs, uh, the jobless numbers that came in last week, these were record numbers. And that's because you have restaurants and, and bars and nail salons, uh, just hosts of businesses that aren't allowed to operate right now. And of course, um, a lot of that is necessary uh, in some of these locations to stop the spread. But this is really uh, being a dramatic hardship on, on individuals, uh, both employees and businesses. Yeah, speaking of small businesses, uh, I think there's some confusion out there. Maybe you can, maybe you'll agree with this. So they're incentivized to keep employees on payrolls, right? But then in Wisconsin, for example, the governor just sent all non-essential workers home. Also, unemployment insurance is hundreds of dollars more, more now, 600 bucks more, I believe, from the feds kicking in what the state already gives. So it's kind of like if you're a small business owner, you're thinking, what's going on here, right? Yeah, there, there's mixed signals coming from Washington, D.C. We at the Heritage Foundation have, uh, have, been, have been encouraging policymakers to do direct targeted temporary aid. We have a plan uh, that would have allowed businesses to keep employees on payroll, even if they can't work, even if they have to temporarily shut down, and it would go ahead and provide those businesses with revenue from the government to keep these employees on payroll so that when the economy gets back running again, these individuals are still attached to their job and can come back to work. Instead, we saw Congress go ahead and pass legislation that'll give people $600 extra per week on top of their unemployment benefits from the state. And that's uh, ended up in a situation where a lot of individuals will find themselves making more, not working at all, than they would on the job. That's a disincentive, and it detaches people from the workplace. We can help those who need it most. We can help those who would be laid off without um, disincentivizing um, work as we just did. We got about a minute left here. Uh, rents are due April 1st. Mortgages are due, of course. Uh, there's a foreclosure and eviction moratorium, we know. Uh, mortgage payments, I'm told, can now be delayed. But someone's not getting paid in all this, right? Someone's going to get hurt. 
yeah, somebody will get hurt. There's never a free lunch on this. And that's why um, we, we can go ahead and, and applaud efforts to direct aid to those that need it. But we need to keep in mind, if we want to see us bounce back as quickly as possible from this, this means containing the virus and making it safe for businesses to open, for people to go back to work. That's what ultimately will allow us to recover as quickly as possible. Yeah, unless people know it's it's safe, they're not going back. They don't want to risk this too too much uh, too much at stake. Joel Griffith, research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, thank you very much for your analysis tonight. Thank you. All right. Other well, news now: the U.S. Health Department is reminding hospitals they cannot ration health based health care based on disabilities. HHS put out a bulletin over the weekend saying health services must be guided by quote fairness equality and compassion. To read more about the plans, go to our sister publication, catholicnewsagency.com. The Vicar General of the Diocese of Rome has tested positive for COVID-19. Cardinal Angelo De Donatus is hospitalized and reportedly is in good condition. He's the first cardinal known to have the virus. De Donatus helps Pope Francis, the Bishop of Rome, with day-to-day -day operations of the diocese. Pope Francis sends a handwritten letter to the president of the Pan-American Committee of Judges for Social Rights. An Argentinian daily newspaper reports the Pope warned about governments putting economy before people. The Holy Father wrote, quote, this is important because we all know that defending people is an economic disaster. It would be sad to opt for the opposite, which would lead to the death of many people something like a viral genocide. Father Christian Mendoza, professor of Catholic social doctrine at the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross, more commonly known as Santa Croce, joins us from Rome on Skype. Father, good to see you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Owen. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Uh, we are seeing, of course, many governments around the world, ours included here in the U.S., trying to juggle the economy, health care. People are sitting home. They want to get back to work, Father. But, of course, lives are more important than jobs. And it's a very complicated situation. Is Pope Francis worried about this? Obviously, he is. But what's, what are his thoughts on this? Pope Francis has recently told that he is very happy with the governments taking big measures to assure the health of people. It would be a temptation to say, listen, um, someone who is very old is not going to live more years. And economically, it's better just to let the virus spread and not doing anything. Because stopping the economy is a great deal here in Italy and also in America. But now, the Catholic social doctrine, the church, has always told us that humanity of a society is measured by the way in which to take care of old people, of sick people, and of infants. So what is happening here is that society and the governments are taking care of what is more essential, that is life, that is human life. That's why the Pope is praising them. Pope Francis also warned about what will follow the pandemic. What could be some of the repercussions, Father? Well, when the Pope is speaking, he always has in mind what he usually calls the Global South, that is, those poor countries of the world, where what will happen is that, for example, a group of people may get together and say, we will get into the supermarket and we will just do violence there because we have no option. In wealthy countries like America, like also here in Italy, the government is saying, don't worry, you will be protected by us. In many other countries, this is not the situation. 
A different subject here, Father, and this is heartbreaking. Masses closed to the public. People can't, you know, they have to stay home. Uh, here at EWTN, we are offering, obviously, people the opportunity to watch Mass on TV, and, and it's a beautiful thing, and we're very proud to be able to help people. But, you know, we want, people want to get back to church, the physical church, right? What could be a solution for a diocese struggling to support themselves financially? If people aren't going to church, they're not putting money into the basket. Yeah, this is a big challenge for the Catholic Church, not only in America or in other countries where they are supported by what people give them, Think about the Holy See. Here, the Vatican is mainly supported by the Vatican museums. They're closed, and they've been closed for two months already and will be closed in the future. But what is interesting here is the church is going forth thanks to the generosity of many people. Now, with this situation, what we are experiencing is like a big train that stops. And so people are saying, what's happening? And they're trying to look at the window and understanding where are we going to go. This happens in society, this happens with the economy, and it's happening also with the church. It's a moment to think about others. This is a big opportunity for reflection. Father Christian Mendoza, professor of Catholic Social Doctrine at the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Owen. God bless you. A day of mourning in Spain. The Catholic country has overtaken China in infections from the deadly coronavirus. In Madrid, bells tolled and flags were at half-staff in honor of those who have died. And the normally busy streets are practically empty. Spain has more than 85,000 confirmed cases with over 7,000 deaths. It is the third most cases behind the United States and Italy. And in China, the city at the center of the deadly outbreak is gradually reopening for business. Shopkeepers in Wuhan are headed back to work after several months of lockdown. And though there are not many customers, it was a sign life is slowly returning to normal there. The antivirus measures enacted by the communist government kept tens of millions of people home for about two months. The head of Japan's Olympic Committee announced the Olympics will open next year on July 23rd, 2021, almost exactly one year after the Games were due to start this summer. Japan is seeing a spike in cases of COVID-19. Coming up, inside the debate on how best to administer the sacraments during the coronavirus pandemic, and the first priest in the United States to die from COVID-19. Pope Francis prays for those who have become frozen with fear. At his daily mass at the Vatican, the Holy Father reminds us the Lord always intervenes and shows his mercy. Even though each one of us has our own personal sins, let us not be ashamed of our mistakes. Instead, he calls us to remember the church is the mother of all and her forgiveness is open to everyone. A Brooklyn parish announces the death of its well-loved pastor, Father Jorge Ortiz Garay. He's the first known priest in the U.S. to die from the virus. EWTN News correspondent Colin Flynn has more from New York. There was sad news in St. Bridget's Parish here in the Diocese of Brooklyn this weekend after it was announced that Father Jorge Ortiz Garay had died from the coronavirus, making him the first U.S. priest that we know of to die of COVID-19. He was 49 years of age and it is understood he had underlying health conditions. He died on Friday at 6 p.m. after being hospitalized the previous Monday. 
Originally from Mexico City, Father Jorge became a priest in 2004. He was ordained in Newark, and in 2019, he took over as pastor at St. Bridget's Parish. Well, this morning, I took the opportunity to speak to Monsignor Kieran Harrington. He is the Vicar for Communications here in the Diocese, and he's someone who knew Father Jorge well. You know, he was really a priest, and uh, he was a man who, uh, who had a deep faith, uh, love of Jesus Christ, and uh, it was an honor and privilege for me uh, to work with him. I did uh, speak with him the night before he died. I went to visit him, and uh, and he was uh, gasping for air. It was very hard for him to breathe, and uh, it was very beautiful that the day he died, uh, just hours after the Holy Father had offered plenary indulgence, uh, which I am sure he was availed of, and uh, I'm sure now that he is in glory. Monsignor Kieran Harrington speaking to me earlier. Well, worldwide, 60 priests and one bishop have died from COVID-19. And here in Brooklyn, arrangements are now being made to fly Father Jorge's remains back to his home city of Mexico. In Brooklyn, New York, Colin Flynn for EWTN News Nightly. Colin, thank you. Amid the coronavirus pandemic, church officials specify what is not acceptable in administering the sacraments. Correspondent Mark Irons reports now outside the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops headquarters. Mark. Oh, and the chairman of the USCCB's Committee on Divine Worship wrote to U.S. bishops on Friday clarifying issues related to the sacraments of penance and anointing of the sick, which have arisen during the church's response to this coronavirus pandemic. With regard to penance, it is clear that the sacrament is not to be celebrated via cell phone. Archbishop Leonard Blair of Hartford writes that in a March 27th memo to U.S. bishops. After consultation between the Vatican and Apostolic Nuncio Archbishop Christophe Pierre, the Pope's representative to the U.S., bishops are getting further guidance about administering the sacraments during the pandemic. The memo, first reported by the Catholic News Agency, also says, with regard to the anointing of the sick, it is not possible for the anointing with oil to be delegated to someone else, such as a nurse or doctor. Catholic News Agency's D.C. Bureau Chief Ed Condon, a canon lawyer, says priests are finding new ways to care for their flocks. Drive-through confessions, um, you know, parking lot, Eucharistic adoration and benediction. We've seen some remarkable flexibility that's coming from a place of real pastoral concern. Bishops are working to devise policies for sacramental ministry that respond to the tightening social restrictions imposed by civil authorities to slow the coronavirus pandemic. U.S. bishops have suspended the public celebration of Mass and restricted the celebration of other sacraments. Not being able to access the sacraments, whether it's the anointing of the sick, whether it's the, the hearing of confessions, um, that is obviously of grave concern, and hopefully it's something that's of, of equal or greater concern to the bishops. And in a response from the USCCB on that massive spending bill from Congress last week to combat the coronavirus, Archbishop Paul Coakley of Oklahoma City, chairman of the USCCB Committee on Domestic Justice and Human Development, says, in part, we are grateful for the many provisions that will help the poor and vulnerable. Owen. Correspondent Mark Irons reporting tonight. Thanks, Mark. And a reminder for you, you can always watch our daily Masses here on EWTN. Masses broadcast each day, 8 a.m., noon, and 7 p.m. Eastern times, all those. We are also airing the Pope's daily Mass, as well as the Novena from Our Lady of Lourdes. In addition, we are offering Eucharistic Adoration from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m., again, Eastern, on EWTN.com. 
An update now on the former president of EWTN News. Dan Burke is back home tonight after being in the hospital with COVID-19. We are all praying for Dan's continued recovery. Up next, why Pope Francis is calling for a global ceasefire. And an infectious disease specialist updates us on the fight against the coronavirus pandemic. Pope Francis joins the United Nations in calling for a global ceasefire. The conflicts non si risolvano attraverso la guerra. At the Holy Father's Sunday blessing to pilgrims, he said conflicts are not resolved through war and asked world leaders to overcome rivalries to fight against the pandemic together. Pope Francis also asked the faithful to take away hardness in our hearts and to always have faith and hope. Well, some encouraging news in the U.S. battle against the COVID-19 pandemic. Portable rapid tests for the coronavirus will soon be made available. President Trump made the announcement yesterday. The president says deployment of the test, which delivers results in just minutes, will, quote, vastly accelerate our ability to monitor, track, contain, and ultimately defeat the virus. Joining me now on Skype is Dr. Paul Carson, an infectious disease specialist and professor in the Department of Public Health at North Dakota State University. He's also a consultant to the North Dakota Department of Health and the immediate past president of the Fargo Guild of the Catholic Medical Association. Dr. Carson, welcome to our show. Good evening, Owen. Nice to be with you. Well, we know testing is just critical in this, right, to try to get to the to, to get done with this virus once and for all. How much of a game changer will this new rapid test be? How soon could we see results, sir? This will be very helpful. I don't know uh, if I'd put it as a huge game changer. There's a couple of big advantages with it, but uh, testing has been our biggest issue, and that's been the biggest bottleneck, and it's a an critically important piece to the public health aspect of this. The Abbott test does something different that we haven't had yet, and that is point-of-care testing, meaning you kind of can drive up and you get a result very quickly, five, 10 minutes later. It's one at a time, so it's not the high volume that we like with some of the things like in our health department lab, but it may be very, very important for things like smaller hospitals, smaller clinics, uh, and that sort of thing. You mentioned Abbott Labs, that's the, the maker of it. Uh, well, this, um, you know, they talk about leveling that curve, right? That's the, that's the key thing in all this, trying to flatten that curve. Right now, it looks like we're still going up, doctor, is that correct? We certainly are. Uh, we're doubling our number of cases anywhere from anywhere about two to five days, uh, depending on where you're at. We're at about 160,000 cases in the U.S. now. About half of those are just in New York and New Jersey alone. They have together almost as many or more cases than all of China did. So we're, we're on the thick of this battle right now, and it's critically important that we do as much as we can to, as you say, flatten that curve, stretch out the cases over more time to give our hospitals and our healthcare workers a chance to contend with this. As you mentioned, lots of places in the U.S. hard hit, no doubt about it. North Dakota, which is a very rural state, what do you see in there? We, we've uh, got just a little bit over uh, 100 cases here, so not anywhere near what other places are battling, but we're a rural uh, state, but we're already feeling it in our hospital. We've got a unit where we're taking care of patients now. We had our first death here just this last week from an assisted living facility that my parents live in. So this is very real to me. You've been an infectious disease doctor for how long? Probably, you know, what, 20 years, something like that, or more? 25 years. 25, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. uh, did you ever, would, you, would you ever have anticipated seeing something like this on this scale? You know, never lived through anything like this, certainly. We talk about it, we've, we plan for it. Ebola gave us a, a little bit of a scare with prepping for it, but nothing that has hit us like this 
and nothing that any of my colleagues uh, have ever experienced like this. This 30 days now, another 30, through, basically through April. We had 15 before, now 30, that's 45. Do you think uh, that'll be enough? So if I were to, you know, try and make predictions here, and uh, the, the, you have to take that with a big grain of salt, but if you look at the countries that have gone ahead of us with China, South Korea, they peaked and kind of came down in the span of about four to five weeks. Italy is just flattening now for the last several days, and that took them about six weeks to start, up, start to flatten their curve. We're more on the trajectory of Italy. I think we're talking kind of hopefully by the end of April or beginning of May to see some relief from this. We've got to pray and, and be strong throughout all of this. Dr. Paul Carson, thank you very much for your insights tonight. Thanks for having me. Okay. England rededicated the country as the Dowry of Mary in the small eastern town of Walsingham. And we ask Mary, our mother, to guide and protect us. Through a live stream yesterday, over 500,000 people joined Monsignor John Armitage to say their yes to the Virgin Mary. This follows a 2017 decision by the Catholic Bishops Conference of England and Wales. The first dedication to Our Lady was by King Richard II way back in 1381. We thank you for watching tonight. For the entire EWTN News nightly team, I'm Owen Jensen. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from a Catholic perspective. Good night and God bless.